Welcome to the Optimal Health Podcast from the Hudson Physicians, getting you back to optimal health when you're feeling sick, stressed, overwhelmed, or run down. We have our second in a series of podcasts with behavioral and mental health and the expert team in uh, Jeanette Concepcion, who's a PhD in psychology. She'll be joining us as well. This is a great team. Dr. Kelly Delahunty, MD, and Lauren Knapp, psychiatric phys- physician assistant. Uh, it is so exciting to have the three of you back on this program. I know the first one was uh, loaded with tons of information and content, and I am super excited for us to uh, bring the second one in as a topic is going to be on anxiety. And I know when I, you know, if you, if you peruse through your website, especially when you get into your area, um, there's a lot of talk about, it. I mean, me being a novice, that this is kind of a starting point of a lot of behavioral mental health things and to get on it early and young is critical. Is that correct? That's exactly right, Pete. And the evidence around that has really increased over the last several months to year. The amount of time that a child spends in that hyper anxious period can really impact how they do going forward. And so Identifying what's going on, treating, um, getting them into remission is exactly what's needed. So we're going to go through a whole story. Is that um, at any one point in time, what we have found recently is that 10 to 20 percent of kids and teens have a diagnosable anxiety disorder. That's huge. That is one in 10 to one in five kids. If you think about the average classroom, that is a lot of kids who are really struggling. And so we just really need to address these kids and get them to a better place. So question for you, uh, is that a current number or is that with the amplification of, of COVID and all of the things that we have been dealing with? Do you know, I don't know of any most recent studies that have um, looked at the COVID effect. So it's more anecdotal, but Mm -hmm. anecdotally, you will find people basically saying that the anxiety has skyrocketed. And in my clinical practice, I certainly see it, it really having escalated since COVID began. Absolutely. And I think right now, you know, the lay press is saying somewhere around 35%. That is not data driven, but that's the we really anticipate that we're going to see a continued increase in the amount of anxiety as kids start to navigate the world again, sort of post-COVID. Can I, simple question here for for another, just for, for the average Joe. How would how would you you know you hear anxiety and and it, it seems like it could have a broad brushed definition, and then when you talk about kids and in, in, in younger years, does this get into a specific area or is it kind of a large? What really is it? So anxiety, you know, that's a term that we use you know all the time, and there are. Um, a number of disorders that are true anxiety disorders. There are, there's the feeling or, or the emotion of just anxiety. There's, you know, um, perfectionism, which kind of goes along with anxiety. But basically, you know, when we are anxious, we are in a mode where it's fight or flight. You know, we um, prepare for the worst and 
that might bring along physical symptoms. It might bring along the emotion of feeling just completely overwhelmed and doomed, even some patients say. Um, but, you know, there are, I believe, five or six true diagnoses of um, anxiety. And so that is obsessive compulsive disorder, um, generalized anxiety disorder, specific phobia, social anxiety disorder, and then separation anxiety disorder. So so it is, it, 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 it's, it's so that my take is it's broad, but kind of narrow too, because there's, you know, there's silos to each, but they all kind of fit under that umbrella. Kids going back to school, obviously they've been, you know, I mean, there's been all sorts of different things they've had to deal with. This is going to be very important for parents to really start recognizing these things because I could only assume that when you get back into the classroom, all this will be amplified even more, correct? Absolutely. And we kind of think that there's really two main lines of thinking when it comes to anxiety. And the COVID thing falls into the second category. There's the biological anxiety, which is the diagnosis that Lauren was referring to. And that's kind of just how you're wired. It's how you're made up. It's kind of just how your brain functions and it can either get better or worse over time. Um, but it's just a leaning disposition towards being an anxious individual. And then we have environmental things that happen, such as COVID, where our, our general safety was threatened. Um, our schools were shut down. So that's an example, a huge example of an environmental impact that creates anxiety. And so these kids having been um, not been able to go to school for so long and then now returning back, that's going to be another environmental factor that's going to, we predict at least, um, really ramp up their anxiety after the summertime. And, you know, Pete, I think it's also important to know that, you know, being anxious at times is functional, right? So you're preparing for an exam. You're feeling anxious. That anxiety is sort of heightening your awareness and your focus on what you're studying so that you're ready. That's a functional anxiety, and it's appropriate to the situation. But there's anxiety that's inappropriate. For instance, children who can't sleep in their own beds. That's a form of anxiety that's, you know, when you're a little kid and you suddenly are afraid of the dark, that's one thing. But when you're 12 years old and you still can't sleep in your own bed, there's something more to that. And so I think we have to look at sort of, is this kind of proportionate for what the threat is? You know, I'm anxious because I have a test versus I'm scared to ever be alone, even when I'm sleeping. Sure. Uh, interesting stuff. Now, uh, the rates of anxiety have apparently been increasing since the uh, advent introduction of social media. And Jeanette, I know this is an area that I've heard you speak about a lot, which I've really found yes. fascinating. Uh, what is it about the social media that really gets to the core of the issues that, that we're seeing? Well, social media, basically, it stimulates the brain in a tremendous way. And so whether it's social media of like, oh, my, somebody liked my, my um, Instagram or somebody commented about me on Facebook or somebody likes my TikTok, anytime that, that a child receives that kind of input to the brain, it's like a little surge. We call it like a little dopamine stimulation. And the brain likes dopamine, so it's a pleasure thing. So the kid then gets hooked. Um, there can also be actually an anxious kind of uh, um, electronic social media thing where a, a kid is scared. In, in the example of like checking their likes, they're going to check it. Oh, oh, my goodness. Did somebody comment? Oh, my goodness. What if that person doesn't like this? 
So the fact that you're re-engaging again and again and again with stimulation that is beyond your control because you don't have control over what the other thing does. So we're finding that the more that kids use their phones and their video games, it is really, really a big factor in increasing the, um, the rate of anxiety, along with the parent pressure that says, well, that's the only way that my child interacts is through social media or their video games. And that, you know, that starts to become an issue because when we come back into the real world and we're in person, we socially struggle with connecting because we're so used to this virtual, um, you know, kind of instant gratification um, sort of system. And in general, I mean, social anxiety, I mean, social media, we um, tend to see, you know, kiddos compare themselves to others so much. And the lives that we post online are not true pictures of our lives. And then the kids compare and they're wondering, you know, why, why am I not like this? Well, I think right. adults do the same thing. Invite, right. right. Why did I, mean, I get invited to this party? You know, and, and there's also a form of cyberbullying that is driven by social media where a child is canceled from their community so that everybody's instructed to not speak to them. Anybody who speaks to them is now also canceled. And it runs around social media so quickly. Pete, if you think about a child who you know, before 2007 had gone to a cafeteria and gotten food and some big old football player tripped him on his way back and he fell and dropped his food, you know, he'd pick it up and go on about his way. But now that moment has been captured with a picture and shared on social media and he's about to be made a fool of. And so by the time he gets home, he's devastated with somebody being mean to him. So and to, he's to take that into a, a situation that I've dealt with, when I first started in radio, I was, you know, always concerned, you know, back in 89, what what if I say something wrong? What happens? The guy I worked for said, you can't go behind a mic and worry about that. Don't worry about it because it's it's waves. It goes away. All right. People aren't going to remember that. Now I'm instructing young broadcasters and podcasters along the way. I can't say that. Because it's now glued onto our uh, atmosphere everywhere we go, whether it's visual, audio, whatever it is, written word, it's it's screenshotted and it's 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 forever and it can be perpetual. So it is it's hard for, I think, society to really fully understand how dangerous the phone can be. And that is really true, you know, with the um, people coming back into the environment from having our lives truly online for this past year. Um, the patients that I have been seeing, they often tell me, I don't even know how to communicate anymore. I don't know how to start a conversation, how to, you know, express express myself. And this is not natural we have to remind ourselves that electronics yes they're an excellent aid and honestly they work good in in the sense of keeping us connected but it only goes so far and we need to be really mindful of our time spent online and you know letting ourselves know that this is not something that is natural and we really need to be aware of that 
And then another thing I would say is about how when the kids are playing the video games late or they're on their phones, which are in their room, that that affects their sleep. And then we know that sleep is a main driver of mood changes. And so when a child is having their sleep interrupted, I can't tell you how many times I've had um, kiddos and they are setting their alarm for 2.13 a.m. so that they don't miss a Snapchat streak. And so yeah. that's anxiety. It's like, well, well, but Dr. C, I've had, you know, 148 days of my streak and I can't miss my streak or else my friend is going to be mad at me. And so they're setting their alarm. So we're, we're creating the anxiety by the pressure to fit in. But we're also totally, totally messing with kids sleep, which then further compounds the anxiety and the other mood disturbance. Wow. So they're going to stage four or they can't because... They have to keep their streak alive. That's absolutely crazy. Now, is is family history a part of this? Uh, is it hereditary? I mean, I know that's kind of, or is it a learned thing? It's both. Okay. So uh, the genetic history matters a ton. It's, it's very heritable. And then when you think about that, you're also being raised by those same anxious people. Yep. So you have both nature and nurture involved in this. It's interesting to me how many times I see an anxious child and the parent is also anxious. So when I ask the child a question in the office, they don't answer, they're avoiding answering and their parent jumps in right away to try to save them because they don't want them to feel uncomfortable. But discomfort is part of how we are forced to communicate and then gain the skills necessary to communicate with an adult. And so it's that pattern of avoidance that's reinforced unwittingly and, you know, in a sense, lovingly by an anxious parent um, that drives this to its deeper depths. Wow, that's very interesting. So um, how do you, so so if you're a parent, you most likely had in that situation had anxiety when you were younger, correct? And then now it's just being moved along. How do you manage that to say, okay, I got to bite my tongue and allow my kids to answer those questions and to take those risks and be exposed, so to speak? I would say it's a lot of practice. It's a lot of practice. I tell parents of just your own stop and think button in your head has to be that you are recognizing what is happening in the pattern and that you jumping in and trying to, air quote, help your child really only makes things worse. And I use the word humbling sometimes because humbling is something that is damaging to an individual. And when parents hear that, parents are like, well, I wouldn't want to humble my child. And absolutely, that's the way we feel as parents. But whenever we jump in so much, we are actually, you know, doing them a disservice. And so just hearing it through a different lens is an important way of engaging the parent to help their child. And being aware, right? Absolutely. And there are, um, you know, some good resources and books on this. And in particular, um, there is a book called Anxious Kids, Anxious Parents by Reed Wilson um, and Lynn Lyons. And this is just an excellent um, viewpoint, you know, that parents can read and say, okay, maybe I am perpetuating some of these things. Maybe this is something I can work on in partnering with my child. Right. And Pete, anecdotally, I will tell you that as a senior in high school, my mother was quite ill and I skipped school 42 days that year. I I did did 64. (gasps) I beat you. Where were you? We could have hung out. It would have been perfect. We could have hung out. Right? It would have been perfect. 
So, but the funny thing is, you know, I won senior skipper of the year and I skipped the senior banquet. So I never got my award. Um, But what's interesting, and I recall this to parents all the time, because when a child avoids school the first day, you know, they feel like, oh, that was a pretty good trick, you know? And then the second day, they don't want to go either. And eventually this terrible snowball effect has occurred and the child is so anxious about returning to school so uh, we have sort of rules around that like do you have a fever over this are you vomiting do you have diarrhea if all of those things are not true you're going to school and for parents that is the toughest love you do it is so tough but you do it so how many how many um days did your kids skip then None. Okay. What the do, do you want me to give you my number? Want, want me to give you my number? Yeah. None. See, is that Isn't funny? that weird? I mean, but I think I think we kind of we grew up in a different era where it wasn't as like locked down, and you know, I, I think we also grew up in an era where it was like college wasn't for everyone, and I think there's a lot of pressures that exist almost out of the womb for kids to be somebody and be something and you're going to go right down this path it might not fit for them but i think that has to add to it absolutely i'm so glad you brought that up pete because if you weren't i was going to bring it up um one (laughs) of the things that that is absolutely happening is we're putting too many big people grown-up-ish expectations onto teen and even youth brains I can't tell you how many times I've had first or second graders in my office that are anxious and it's because they're worrying about where they're going to go to college. And it's, you know, putting those kind of expectations into a little kid brain, it stresses it out. And it's just, you know, they can't imagine what that's like, but they've been picking up on the messages that whether it's parents or teachers or society, you know, has been telling them that you must go to this college and you have to do this, or you have to be this expert athlete. And, and it's just too much pressure. And then the brain kind of just mentally air quote again, explodes. And the way it comes out is in the form of symptoms. And the, the symptoms often are anxiety. I've seen a lot of uh, young athletes that I've coached along the way who have the, uh, what I term phantom injuries. And uh, they, they're taking themselves out of the, the game or the season. Um, there's a lot of quote back injuries and things like that, that um, I think are, I, I know the athlete, let's say, they just need a break. And I, I think it's very hard to watch even an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old who's being expected to be something they don't even know they are. So how can you not develop some form of anxiety? Because no matter what you do, you're kind of set up to fail. Right. That's exactly right. And Pete, it's interesting that you talk about the complaints, the physical complaints, because so often in the office, what we see is people coming in with sort of these midline complaints. So they have chronic headaches or they're having trouble swallowing or they you know, they have heartburn, their bellies ache. You know, there's, there's all of these complaints that are chronic in nature. And so often what it comes down to is they're anxious. And they don't have language for that, mm. or they have language, but they don't want to say the word. And parents, you know, bring them in. And sometimes we, as providers, will fail to recognize the pattern. That's why it's so important to be seeing the same provider again and again and again so we can get to the bottom of that. 
So when you when you do recognize and diagnose that, that's obviously like I don't think for anybody to be like a really nice conversation. I mean, you know what I mean? It's it's you know to basically say, you know, um it's probably more than just the physical. There's something going on here. How hard mm-hmm. is that conversation to have and what does that sound like from you guys to the parents? Well, it's interesting because I I actually often talk to the kids about physiologically, why are they feeling this? So for instance, the child who's having trouble swallowing, um, often that's based on the fact that their bellies, their tummies are anxious and they're putting out too much stomach acid. And what's happening then is the acid is backwashing up and their their esophagus is spasming. Mm. So that, that, is what causes it and knowing that their their body and their brains are connected that that spirit does drive discomfort i also talked to the parents about you know our serotonin receptors are in the greatest quantity in the brain but the second area of the most serotonin receptors in the body is in the gut and really? so that's why you know that's part of why we are we sense those symptoms there Interesting. And so, um, so this is, this is probably getting a little inside baseball, a little more technical than we need to get, but is that the brain telling the body that, or is that the body telling the brain that? So I think, I think without, I think this is happening on a subconscious level. Okay. I think our spirit is is causing discomfort that will bring you to attention so that you will help heal the spirit is the Mm -hmm. way I think about it. And that's how Mm -hmm. I talk about it with the families. I think the child needs to know that, yes, you should have complained about your belly hurting because your belly does hurt. It's real. But the reason that your belly is hurting is anxiety. Gotcha. So we've talked a lot about kids. That's what our whole top. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jeanette. I was going to dovetail on what Kelly was saying that um, what I find that kids have been sent to my office as a psychologist now, so that often they've been formally diagnosed with anxiety or they suspect it. I find that parents and kids are relieved because they know oh. something is, and and they're even more relieved to, to realize, hey, I can do something about this. So they don't have to just live with it, you know, that, that it goes back into the belly pain. They can realize it's like, I can actually kick this thing and feel better. And that's, you know, just getting it out in the open is an incredible relief for a lot of these families that struggle with a kid with anxiety. And overall, I mean, the visits, you know, they go positively because like you said, Jeanette, we realize, you know, there is perhaps a reason underlying this. And really, that's what we do throughout our visit is what what is at the root of this, you know, and stemming from that, we have seen physical problems and avoidance and, you know, but at the root of this is anxiety and we have treatments for it and we're talking about it and the world is becoming more and more aware. So I do think, you know, it is a hopeful thing that, um, that we're talking about these sorts of things and getting help with them. So that trans, okay. I beg your pardon. I think the other thing that's really interesting is that in the adult world, this is also true, and that there are FDA-approved medications that are serotonin reuptake inhibitors to help chronic abdominal pain. So that's the connection overall. So that was my next question. So now we get to the uh, diagnosis. What's the prescription? 
I mean, from from a you know from a you know medication perspective to uh, things you can do. One of the things that I've noticed was interesting, um, and and it's a word in the talking points, uh, Kelly, that you provided w- was not avoiding. I mean, I think, and we heard it earlier. I think that's like a if you're aware of this, I think you have to power through things sometimes. And, yeah. and push through. And when you do, you would probably, I would guess, feel much better. I'm um, saying I did it, and then it becomes easier and easier, correct? Kind of like, Absolutely. well, I, I can I can say a funny here. Can I do it? Did, you ever, did you ever watch What About Bob? Yeah. Oh, the Baby yeah. Steps with, with Dr. Leo Marvin. Baby Steps. Right? Exactly. It's kind of baby steps. <laughs> I'm going to watch that movie tonight. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, Lauren, you're going to take over, I think, on this one? Life is all about the little things, you know, and what we what we get out of life. Um, and coming from somebody who very much so, you know, I struggled with anxiety growing up and I had to figure out how to become comfortable with feeling uncomfortable. Mm. And that honestly, that mantra become comfortable with feeling uncomfortable it changed things for me and it fueled me. And I really took advantage then, you know, okay, yes, I'm feeling anxious, but change is coming and change is good. And, you know, let's, let's really approach this um, from a rational mind. And I know that emotions play into it, but um, you know, we do have very effective treatments for this. And when it comes down to it, medications, they are a really good tool for us. And in fact, um, Dr. Delahunty might want to speak to this because she just attended a training about how it is so important to treat early and treat um, comprehensively. And so I'll kind of turn it over to Dr. D. So that's right, Lauren. And and the what we know from recent studies is that if you see somebody who is anxious in your office, you need to start medication early on and therapy together. Because if you do that, the chance that that child will be in remission, meaning no more symptoms in 12 weeks, is 65%. And that's remarkably high. If you start therapy, but you don't start medication right away, and you wait until therapy is just shown not to be enough, you add it in later, you only get to 45% of patients in remission. And if you do therapy alone, you get 35% who hit remission in 12 weeks. And what we know about how the brain works and how neurological pathways in the brain work, it makes sense to do that. I think as pediatricians, we've always been quite cautious about that. We've used what's called the step approach where you start with therapy. If things aren't going well, you add in the medication, but that has been proven. That's a a real game changer for us, that that has been proven to not be the proper approach. Are there levels of, uh, I don't know how to really word that. Are there there levels of severity, let's say, uh, in patients where you say, Ooh, we got to get on this right away or, or is it pretty much similar? Absolutely. Well, so we kind of describe levels of severity as um, high, medium, or low, or mild, moderate, and severe. And so severe anxiety, I used to tell um, parents, it's like, how quickly can you call your, your child's pediatrician? You know, it's, because it really is dramatically impacting that child's daily functioning. They're too anxious to get out of bed. They cannot sleep through the night. They're having all these physical complaints. They're unhappy. 
And so they're more paralyzed by the anxiety. So that would be a severe um, situation. Um, moderate, you know, is obviously in the middle. And then mild is where the medicines can help, but the therapy is often about realigning some of the other sources of stress in that child's environment. Mm -hmm. So looking at the, um, the sources of stress from academics, from social issues, from family issues, and then tackling those one-on-one -on -one, with the overall caveat being that um, there's a, a standard of treatment, it's called cognitive behavioral therapy, that does beautifully well with the treatment of anxiety disorders of all sorts. And all that means, we call it CBT for short, and all that means is how thoughts and thinking is relating to feelings and how strong they are. And so a good therapist or psychologist um, can work with kids and teens and their parents on teaching that individual those skills, which can then lower the, the level of severity from high to medium, medium to low, and then where it's manageable. And then Pete, to kind of touch on, on the medicines that we use for anxiety. So I think of um, a couple of different categories here. When I think of daily treatment of anxiety, we have backbone medicines that we use, mm -hmm. I call them. And that is the SSRIs and the SNRIs. And what these are, I mean, they're selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So they allow serotonin, which is a kind of a happy chemical, to stick around longer. And the effectiveness, when you think about the biological standpoint of this, it makes sense. You know, we're addressing the, um, the neurotransmitters that are the issue. And just because we, you know, start a medicine to treat anxiety doesn't mean we're going to be on it for life. In fact, the literature is really showing um, even a, a 9 to 12 months of being on an SSRI or an SNRI can comprehensively um, put the patient into remission. And that is so important to realize, you know, just, just because we have anxiety, this is not something that you're going to have to take a medicine for the rest of your life. Um, there's another category of medicines that we tend to use um, when we are so acutely anxious that maybe we're having panic attacks or we're so overwhelmed, you know, that kids have behaviors. Um, in those situations, we have more so kind of rescue medicines. And what these medicines can do is just really cut down on the severity of that panic, of that anxiety in that moment. Um, so, you know, we have kind of a variety of approaches in treating um, anxiety, but the backbone treatment is to do an SSRI like Zoloft, Prozac, or an SNRI, Cymbalta, um, Pristique. So, those are, um, those are our main go-tos. And I think the big deal is while the child is on medications and getting active therapy with a good therapist, parents are also learning how, how to parent really bravely and, and not allow the avoidance to develop, to change the family um, dynamic around what to do when we're anxious. Like, Lauren says they, you know, use your mantra. Um, I, I often say to kids, we have to walk towards what we're afraid of and it will go away. You know, it, as we walk towards it, we gain our skills that we can, we can deal with it. So I, I think that combination of family therapy, CBT for the child and medication can be so remarkable in changing the course of a child's life. So what can parents do uh, when they recognize these things? Uh, 
What's their next steps? Oh, Pete, there are so many things that parents and families can do. One is to increase activities as a family. Um, I have some, often recommend something I call waffle time, you know, so the family actually has waffles on a weekend morning. Who doesn't like waffles? You know, it exactly. makes you feel good. Um, I, I, I sometimes say just like that, that musical Hamilton, which a lot of kids and teens still enjoy, there's a scene where it's Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton and they're singing and um, Burr tells Hamilton to talk less and smile more. Mm -hmm. Kids often engage in a lot of the do this, Johnny, do that, Susie, a lot of talking and explaining. And if they take a step back and just smile and relax, it changes the tone of the family functioning. I also encourage um, parents to have their kids be involved in more physical activity because we know that them being physical actually stimulates the brain in a good way. I encourage them to have their kids actively try to get their feelings out. And it's kind of, you know, routine as we would think that is. It's remarkable how many kids really hold a lot in and they do not actively express their emotions. It's also important for parents to help their kids to find healthy peers ones that are engaging in pro-social activities. Um, so no graffitiing or no being truant from school. Oops. <laughs> Finding yeah. some healthy peers that they can just have some good old-fashioned fun with. Building academic success is important because when a kid totally rocks on that science test and they get a B plus, they feel pretty good and then they're less anxious. I also think, Pete, you know, avoiding that sort of overscheduling that oh. a lot of parents do. So there's something scheduled every night. Mm -hmm. so, that, so that some of the physical activities they're enjoying doing is with their parents and with their siblings. And it's laid back. I think the other thing that cannot be overemphasized is the, the importance of good sleep hygiene and an adequate number of hours of sleep. And not getting up for TikTok. The tick T, as I like to call it, at 2.13 for your streak. Oh, yeah. You know, totally. from the overscheduling, um, I deal in the youth uh, world, as has been well shared here. And we were taking registrations for some summer league stuff and, you know, parents registering in February, March. I'm getting um, emails, you know, when when is the schedule coming out? Um, we've got this, 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 this 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 and this scheduled like three things a day and right. uh I, i'm saying you know maybe you just shouldn't even do this because i would be miserable as a child no i'm not kidding it is insane and and i am convinced now this is me being broad brushed not all but there are some parents where their whole purpose is to fill their child's life with as much structured, scheduled activity so their social life can work around it, which they love, and then allow the kid to do their thing so they can do that. And that just kind of defines their whole purpose. And then what happens is I see these kids stressing out. I see them getting hurt, quote-unquote, wanting to leave the surface, not wanting to come back, looking sad, parent walking probably 10 feet in front of the kid as they walk into the facility who's dragging behind with their head down. I'm serious. This is real. And it kills me. And you know, Pete, think about who those parents are. So often those are really anxious parents who don't know what to do with downtime themselves, right? Amen. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing I'd like to add is that um, that old adage, it takes a village to raise a child. 
is really, really true, especially as life gets more complicated for these kids and parents with even bigger. And so think of who else you can involve in your kid's life that is a person who's not MOM or DAD, yep. okay, but who is a coach or a pediatrician or a psychologist. I have kids that I've worked episodically with pretty much throughout the course of their development, just in little blips. And, and it's so relaxed. It's like, I know that they see me as a presence in their world. And it's a place where it's not shameful. It's like, I get them. Um, I'll tell you a little story. My younger daughter just graduated from college and we celebrated with her, uh, her best friend from college who I've known for almost four years. And what her mom was saying is, you know what, Jeanette, thank you because you've been, you've been like a mom for her daughter. And when her daughter left, I said, you know, girl, don't do, don't, don't do anything stupid in graduate school. Okay. That's what I would say to like my kid. Yes. <laughs> and it's like, I'm, I'm in her village, you know, yeah. I gravitated towards being in her village as just an influence. And I hope that was a positive influence, but I think if we can kind of template that and say that kids need other people in the village, wherever you can find them. Well, I put that on, if I may jump in, Lauren, I'm sorry. I put that a lot on the people that are doing the coaching or the teaching or the instructing or whatever it may be to not just do it to pass the time, but to do it with passion and purpose and to really care about the kids. And I can say that, you know, I, I've coached something since my 10th grade year back in 83. So I've started then with the little kids on day baseball and I never stopped. And here we still go with, with other sports. But at the end of the day, there are still kids in their 20s that come to me and this isn't like look at me look at me no it was more, it's more about you provided the platform of trust for them to realize that you aren't MOM or DAD but you are someone who can give them good direction and so to the adults that are listening to this instead of worrying about what you're feeling and not you know being worried about filling your downtime how can you be part of that village to get engaged with our kids too I, that's kind of an open challenge for me to everybody because we all can do this we're capable exactly and too i want to make sure that you know no one feels targeted or, you know, shamed because of this, because we all have things that we could work on. And, you know, that anxious parent can learn a lot through helping their child that they can even benefit from, you know. The compassion of Lauren Knapp is amazing. And Agreed. that's really an awesome statement there. And um, the three of you are just an absolutely dynamic team. I mean, the people at Hudson Physician that deals with everything, Western Wisconsin, in terrific hands with the three of you. It's it's terrific. It's great to see. Well, we sure appreciate Thank that. You, Thank you, Pete. That's my pleasure. It's what we see. It's great. Um, the other things. Did we have anything else? I mean, you know, uh, are we are we pretty much have we covered the bases here? I, I do too. I, I, th I think this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. And the thing that I have to, to feel in, in my summary is that there are a lot of things in life that can, you know, create or contribute to anxiety. There could be events. There could be f a family a hereditary type thing. There, there could be social media. There could be all sorts of different things that could make this work and go recognizing it is the most important part parents don't need to be ashamed to recognize it if they become under the microscope and then they're the ones well you know maybe um you know at the end of the day they can get better too their kids can get better and then their grandkids right 
Absolutely. It's oh, remarkable. it's stereo. That was phenomenal. <laughs> it's remarkable how many times we see a child in the office and begin treatment, and the parent says, you know, I've dealt with this my whole life. Maybe I need some help. And it's, it's really a beautiful thing. That's awesome. Well, I think that's going to do it for this show. I think I'm going to be in person on our next one, and we're not going to be – but it, you guys sounded amazing on the phone here, just so you know. I, you'll cool. be very happy with the product, so uh, I think it'll, it'll be yeah. good. So this was an awesome, awesome uh, podcast, and I appreciate the three of you for joining me. Uh, Jeanette Concepcion, Ph.D. in uh, psychology, uh, Dr. Kelly Delahunty, M.D., and uh, Lauren Knapp, psychiatric physician assistant. Uh, we have a great program here, and you've got an excellent website that lays out everything that's going on with the mental and behavioral health. Uh, program that we're working here and I'm just really glad to be able to share these these times with you and hear the great things you say because I know I'm personally taking what you're saying and applying it to those I know and and that's really the concept of what this information should do correct yes that's exactly right great on that note take this information and go help some people and uh, be sure to see our team and they'll take care of you at Hudson Physicians Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Uh, thank, you. thank you. Have a great day, everybody. So long, everybody. Bye.